0: Australia. gold in a world record. Now it's Donovan Bailey trying to pick up
1: runners. Donovan Bailey is putting on the third. He's got it. 9-8-4. A world record for Donovan Bailey and a gold medal.
2: A perfect
1: score. 10.0 for Dasha Combination. A perfect score. The first time I've never seen it. In over 100 years, nobody's won as many medals at the Olympic Games in any sport than this great champion, Michael Phelps. Usain Bolt, sprinting ahead, went by Daylight
2: and setting a world record. 9.68. The wind is okay. How easy was that?
1: It is Off the Podium, an Olympics podcast coming to you today for a great interview. So excited to bring this back to you. The interviews, that is. Obviously, we've had a couple of good weeks covering the Commonwealth Games. But uh, you remember a couple of months ago, we spoke with an author of a book called uh, The Waterman, Michael Loyne, talking about America's first ever swimming gold medalist, Charles Daniels. Well, today we are going to be talking about the sport of volleyball and the US's first ever volleyball gold medal came in 1984 at the los angeles olympics this was the men's volleyball team and given that i think like most australians or people outside of america we assume america dominates everything so i've been winning forever and this wasn't the case in volleyball prior to 1984 america never won an olympic medal in either men's or women's volleyball and in the men's volleyball side i think had never even medaled at any major international competition. And what makes this even more unique is the sport of volleyball was invented in the United States. So on the show today, we're speaking to the author of a book which goes into detail the story behind the 1984 gold medal winning team sean murray and also joining us on this interview is the coach of that team in 1984 the legendary doug bill who is an international volleyball hall of famer coached the u.s men's volleyball team also to two other olympics in sydney and athens and this is a a fascinating chat we learn from Sean how he came up with the idea of this book his personal connection to why he came up with his story and we also learn from Doug sort of his olympic ambitions whether or not this was something he'd always wanted to go towards some great stories behind the scenes of how this team all came together and just some of the forward thinking things that were involved in this team in the 70s and the 80s which we all take for granted today in the sporting world but these were innovative ideas back in the time which helped led this team to winning a historic gold medal at the 1984 olympics so i know you're going to enjoy this chat it is a fantastic one so sit back relax and listen to our chat with author sean murray and u.s olympic volleyball coach of men's volleyball doug Beal. excited on off the podium to learn about some stories that perhaps some people aren't overly familiar with in this part of the world but some people might be familiar with in other parts of the world and today we're going to talk a bit about volleyball a brand new book has been released it is called if gold is our destiny how a team of Mavericks came together for Olympic glory and it tells the amazing story of of the U.S. men's volleyball team that went on to win gold in 1984 at the Los Angeles Olympics, and then went on to become the most dominant volleyball team of the 80s. And the incredible story about this is that prior to the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984, the U.S. men's volleyball team had never won not only an Olympic medal, but a medal at any major tournament. This group of men that came together and turned a fledgling system of volleyball in the US into a powerhouse. It's an amazing story. And we are here today to chat with two people heavily involved in this book and also that great program of the 80s. First of all, the author of the book. It is a pleasure to welcome off the podium, Sean Murray. First of all, Sean, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you today.
0: Great. Thanks, Ben. Really happy to be here to talk about this team and the
1: story. And also joining us, the the team, the story, the head coach of that team from the 1984 Olympics, coached the U.S. men's volleyball team between 1977 and 84, and then later on between 97 and 2004, played on the U.S. men's volleyball team as well in the 70s, and he's a member of the International Volleyball Hall of Fame. Doug Bill is with us today as well. Doug, absolute honor to have you on the show today as well to chat about this today as well.
2: Thanks, Ben. It's a pleasure, and uh, I think Sean did a wonderful job capturing this uh, this story. And uh, I'm delighted
1: to join you and talk about it. It's it is such an amazing story because sort of someone in Australia, we're not really that exposed to volleyball. Not a a sport that is widely, uh, I guess, publicized here. And it's kind of one of those things that I think a lot of Australians are maybe a bit naive. We think America dominant in all sports you've been dominant forever you know this is just how it's been but when you learn about a story like this particularly a sport that was invented in the u.s as well that it took this amount of time for there to be a level of success it's an incredible story i mean sean i'd love for you to just briefly tell the story about how you came about writing this story because you have a bit of a personal connection to this team and to why you obviously chose this subject to write for a book
0: yeah, well, then it started about five years ago. My wife gave me a book as a gift for my birthday. It was it's called Boys in the Boat. I don't know if uh, if you or your listeners are familiar with that book. It's very popular in the United States and it's Olympic story as well. It's a story about the 1936 men's crew team that represented the United States at the Olympics in Berlin. And that crew team was actually the varsity. Crew team at the University of Washington, which isn't far from where I live here in Seattle, Washington, and so the book sort of started as a regional success, but it really blossomed across the country and became a bestseller. And someone, my wife, handed it to me. I didn't know anything about the team. I read the story. Uh, it's it's a great story. It's very inspiring. And I teach leadership and organization development, team building to corporations here in the states. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great to to have a story like this that I could use to, to teach others about how to build a winning culture, how to build a, a winning team, how, how a group of people come together to do something that's greater than the whole and creates that sort of um, cult dynamics and cohesiveness that we're always looking for in teams, whether it's in sports or business. And so I, I thought, started thinking about, well, what team could I write about? And it occurred to me, I had a, a connection to a team. You now, my father, Don Murray was the team uh, sports psychologist. He, he called himself a team psychologist. He was really there to help the team build um, build the kind of culture and the, uh, help work with the inner dynamics and the relationships between players and coaches. He was he worked with uh, Doug Beal and his partner uh, Chuck Johnson. The two the two of them worked with Doug and the rest of the coaching staff in the early '80s to. Try to help these young players become a team. And I was at the Olympics in '84. I was 13 years old. I'd gone because my father was, you know, part of what Doug called the team around the team. So I remembered the this group of players. They were really um, had a great personalities. They caught the attention of the country. They certainly caught my attention. And they they won a gold there in 84. And so I thought, you know, maybe I could write about this team. I knew they'd won a gold. And I knew that they had been on an outward bound, which is kind of a, I don't know if that's popular in Australia, but it's a, it's a kind of wilderness course, a three-week course before the Olympics. And I what so they went on the outward bound to sort of build team as a team building and building cohesiveness on the team. And so I knew those two facts and I thought there was probably a story there. You know about how this team came together my original idea was the book would at the end of each chapter there would be you know points that would tell the reader you know he, here's two or three lessons you can learn from you know this part of the team's journey but that ended up being it sort of broke up the narrative and it wasn't great for the reader and my editor we eventually said no let's just tell the story the readers are going to figure it out anyway and luckily i, I made that decision because it's been well-received as a story, just the story in itself. And and, and I think it's a, it's a fun, dramatic story of how this team came together. But also if you read it, the subtext, if you're interested in how teams come together and how people work together to build something bigger than themselves, there's also that. There's the lessons that we can all take away and whatever organization, whatever we're doing in our lives, we always are working with teams. And so we can, you know, I hope that readers can also take away those lessons so that's that's the genesis of the book
1: as i mentioned to you off air just before we started recording i read this basically in a in a day it was that compelling sort of uh going through it so the narrative works very well i'll just uh put it out there the way it kind of flows with everything doug what was the phone call like when sean called you up and said hey i've got this idea for this book i mean obviously yourself remained involved in volleyball post the 1984 Olympics and went on to some other great things. But I mean, was this something that you were looking forward to going through the memory banks to relive that obviously great moment in your life that you helped coach the team to that gold in 84 and everything that built up towards it?
2: That's a great question. Uh, I thought um, this kid's never going to do this. Uh, So I'll (laughs) I'll, I'll humor him a little bit. Um, You know, uh, It's it's almost uh, it's challenging even to remember the first call because Sean did just a remarkable job here and stuck with it and uh, worked. I I can't even imagine how many hours Uh, and so um, I I certainly was happy to help Um, the relationship with uh, with Sean's father was a special one for for me and, and all the rest of the members of the team. Um, Don and and his partner were quite impactful I think in a lot of the uh, decisions that we made and a lot of the things that we did which were um, unique and different at at that time in sports. Um, Sean mentioned the the outward bound trip. Uh, Those kinds of team building activities are much more popular, much more common today. There's a much broader range of uh, activities that teams can engage in. It, it was nobody was doing something like that back in in the uh, early nineteen eighties, and, and the concept that um, that Don and and his partner brought to us was really unique and interesting, uh, and we can certainly talk a lot about it. So I I, I can't remember exactly. I there there. There are so many people who interact with you when you're in the Olympic world who want to tell your story or think it's remarkable or tell you how terrific you are. And, and very few of them, uh, honestly, follow through. And Sean was just remarkable because there were there were periods uh, where he was writing a lot and there were periods where he, he had to take care of his life. Um, so, you're writing a book that consumes you. Part of it for sure is the connection to his father, and, and it's a close connection and, and, a, and a wonderful, uh, I think, ode, frankly, to the, the work that his father did um, his whole life. Um, but there were peaks and valleys, and sometimes I wouldn't hear from Sean for some months, maybe longer, and, and other times he was uh, sort of all over me. Um, <laughs> but um, I, I just, I it's hard to overstate how wonderful I think it is that he told the story and and the unique perspective that he has. And uh, I tried to help as much as I could and, and certainly shared whatever files and archives I had from from those years. And it's it's much different than trying to uh, archive things uh, digitally and electronically that we can do so easily today. Um, but I, I, I just I, I can't uh, I, don't know, I can't be more grateful for uh, the work that Sean did because it, it's a fascinating story and, and hopefully it resonates like it did with you. I think that's terrific.
1: Well, just on that, I'd be intrigued to know, uh, Sean, you know, obviously you mentioned the book about how popular this was in 1984, how the entire country got behind it. But as the years have, past is this something that is still widely known among american sporting circles or is this kind of faded away a little bit more to a little bit just in the volleyball circles because you compare it a lot say to the miracle on ice in 1980 which is widely known but is this a Mm -hmm. story that is still often talked about or is this kind of a opportunity for people to remember how big of a deal this was uh you know 30 nearly 40 years ago now
0: well in my experience Generally, this team is is not has not remained in the in the forefront of the sports consciousness of this country, especially compared to the 1980 upset against the Soviets at Lake Placid that we call the miracle on ice. And so in many ways, this is a chance to revisit that, to shine a light on it, to remind people of what this team did. I think in in many respects, what this team did compares very favorably to, you know, what the hockey team did. I know there were different circumstances, but you know, you mentioned before that the men's volleyball had never before medaled. You know, so this is a team that went from two years before the Olympics, they were ranked 13th in the world, or they came in 13th at the World Championships, and they knew they had to make some changes quickly because the Olympics were coming. and uh, And so, a big part of the book is about how they they go from. From 82 to winning gold. And it's just a um, it's a great story that frankly, when you talk to people in the States today, they remember a few names sometimes. Karch Karai is the name that many people remember. There's also a player on that team named Steve Timmons, who had a, had a great has a great personality and went on to win multiple gold medals. And and so some of the personalities and people, but well, when you do running across people that remember the team. They remember it very fondly and, and they, they're very interested in learning the backstory of how it happened. And so I'm hoping that this book really brings it to light. Also, I just want to mention that the Olympics are coming back to Los Angeles in 2028 Yeah, and nine of the 12 players on this team were from, I'd say the greater Los Angeles area, you know, Southern California, for sure. Uh, three of the players were, were from, uh, sort of the Midwest and nine were from Los Angeles, which is really unprecedented as far as a team that's comprised 75% from um, a, ho- a host city of the Olympics. It's not just that they were playing in their home country, but these players were playing in their home city in front of their friends and their family. And they were very well known in Los Angeles at the time. Many of them learned how to play volleyball on the beaches of Southern California. So there's a lot of special elements to this team and i hope that as people read the book and becomes more popular that it it will be more fondly remembered just like the ad hockey team
1: well i'm just making a bold prediction now because we like to do it on on the show obviously uh 2002 salt lake olympics the miracle and ice team lit the cauldron so in about six years time for the la 28 olympics you know, uh, potentially some of the guys. Doug, you might get the call up there, light the cauldron for the uh, 28 Olympics. Would that be something that uh, we can put out into the universe now to, to happen in six years' time?
2: I, I, I think that's one of the best suggestions I've heard recently. I, I like that <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Yeah, You're welcome. Uh, <laughs> I agree, yeah. You know, the, um, the 84 Olympics, in many respects, uh, it, it's been described this way, kind of saved the, the Olympic world. Um, they they were honestly the only uh, bidding city at that time. Um, they, they had a really unique re- relationship with the International Olympic Committee. Um, perhaps they developed uh, the, the current marketing popularity of the Olympics and the sponsorship programs and the broadcasting revenue that has uh, grown so dramatically. Um, but it was a remarkable games in many respects. Um, uh, our team being so, so dominated by local talent uh, was just one element. Uh, it, it just, um, it, it, it was incredibly popular uh, coming uh, off of uh, the, the boycotted games in, uh, in Moscow and the really, I, I wouldn't say disastrous, but financially disastrous, ga- disastrous games. Uh, in uh, in Montreal in 76 uh, that really pushed a lot of potential bidders away from the games. Uh, So it was it was sort of a watershed games. And I I don't know that the 2028 games will be quite the same, but there's some interesting elements to those games that might change the Olympic movement, the Olympic world uh, internationally again. They're not building a single venue in 2028. That's going to be the first time that that's ever happened. Mm. Uh, I think P- Paris obviously is coming up in a couple of years and, and they're going to have a pretty unique games as well. But uh, Los Angeles is a remarkable uh, city for the games, M- much like Sydney, I think, and London and some pretty unique locations. So we'll see what happens, but lighting the cauldron would be, uh, we, ex- <laughs> we, we accept uh,
1: Good. I don't have much sway with the IOC, but, you know, there's still time. I, I who knows where I could yeah. be in six years to help out with that. So uh, uh, yeah. I'm waiting for a call now from Thomas Bach. I'm sure that'll, will come anytime. We'll, we'll make sure that happens. But I mean, just yeah. on that sort of, um, in the lead up into 84 Doug of course you you played on the team in 70 between 1970 76 and Sean explains in the book sort of the the narrow misses really that Team USA had not qualifying uh, for those Olympics I mean did you harbour sort of growing up that ambition to become an Olympian and I mean was that always designated to volleyball had you had other sporting pursuits that maybe you kind of pursued to harbour potentially an Olympic dream?
2: You know it's interesting i i I don't recall growing up uh, as one of those kids that says i'm going to win an olympic gold medal Uh, that's the most important thing in my life i played a lot of different sports Uh, sports was certainly a big part of my life i got introduced to volleyball um, in a unique interesting way i didn't come from a part of the united states where the sport was particularly popular there were only a few pockets uh, during the years I was growing up where that, that even was possible, uh, mostly in Southern California and a couple of other smaller areas. Um, you know, I, I got lucky. Um, I, I I was introduced to the sport pretty early. Uh, there was a connection. I, I loved it, something about the rhythm of it, the teamwork, the the skills of it uh, that, that connected to me that I loved, and so I, I played it even though it wasn't a high school sport. It was barely starting as a college sport at that time. Um, I did play a year in college at, at Ohio State, which has grown. Uh, the program has grown dramatically, and now it's one of the sort of the icon uh, university programs in our country. Um, I, I wound up coaching a little bit at Ohio State, which was um an interesting experience. And I, I say this to a lot of people, the era that I played volleyball, almost everybody did some coaching. You, you almost had to. The, the structure was so um, undefined that you if you wanted to play at a high level, you had to organize the players that you could attract. You had to put teams together. There was very little college volleyball, almost no high school volleyball. It was all sort of amateur club um, volleyball. And what's now USA Volleyball was, was called something different, United States Volleyball Association. Their national championships was the, the peak uh, competition in the country at that time. And there were college teams that went to that, but they were not the, at the top. Um, so I, I, I don't know, at some point, I just got more and more involved in the sport. And I got involved in the administration of it or the leadership of it in a, in a certain way, which a number of other players slash coaches also did in that era. And a, a lot of us had these ideas as players. We have to change what we're doing. This isn't working. We're not very good. We're not competing with the best teams in the world. We're, we're going to these competitions. We're selecting our team every year as though we're starting from scratch. Uh, It's sort of an all-star team. We're not training very very much. We're not playing very many competitions. It's not working. That's not a model for success. And, And clearly, we didn't have much success. And so, in a sense, it was easy to say, we have to change everything. And I'm, gosh, there were so many people that were integral to that. But the leadership of our volleyball association was receptive to that. They weren't happy either. And as you mentioned in the lead-in, volleyball was invented in the United States. This sport started in Holyoke, Massachusetts back in the late 1890s. It was for us that were really involved, that was embarrassing. It it was kind of humiliating and really frustrating. And we thought, we always had thought, we've got some really good players here we could play at a high level we there had been a few random moments where a, a us team at an international competition would win a match and then lose five uh, and and so there were these sparks of of wonderful performance that just reinforced our belief if we changed enough we could be a good a, a leading volleyball country in the world and so as I say, it wasn't that hard to think that everything had to change and everything had to be done in a different way.
1: Which is really well written out in the book explaining that journey. And, Sean, you would sort of mentioned about, you know, telling that story about how this all came about. I want to talk about Outward Bound shortly, but just everything in the lead up to that. I mean, your father, sports psychology, not something that was really a big thing in the 80s or the 70s so sort of those steps there and ultimately doug sort of going on to what you were saying there the creation of a of a hub which initially was in dayton ohio then moved back to california and even just sort of detailing the divide that existed between say the beach volleyball community the indoor volleyball community i mean Today, most people just assume that because beach volleyball is an Olympic sport now that, you know, you can easily forge a career in both. But of course, in the 80s, beach volleyball was still a a long time away from becoming an Olympic sport. So all those elements that kind of went into building it. I mean, Sean, were were you, I guess, learning all of this as you were going along? Were you sort of aware as a child, learning from your dad about the efforts that were being putting into this to kind of turn this program into the success it became?
0: not as a child i mean to me it was they had won the gold. i watched them win the gold as a 13 year old and on television i didn't get to go to the gold medal match my, were, my parents were only allocated two two tickets there were there were five of us in the family and so most matches we all went to but on that match it was just my parents but you know to me you know i had looking to at hindsight at 84 it's like well of course they won they had great players i mean i'm sure it just all came together and i think a lot of people have assumptions like that you've got great players and they they come together in practice and and they go on to win gold and there's just as we all know there's just so much more to the story and as i as i started to uncover kind of peeling back the layers i realized you know what went into building that team and that's what i was hoping to discover as i researched the project that's why i wanted to write the book is to really show and demonstrate at least what one team did to overcome some of these challenges. And um, they had a lot of talent. That's They had a sort of a golden generation of talent that arrived when the training center moved from Dayton, Ohio to San Diego in 1981. And Doug Beal had previously been the coach in the late seventies and he re- was con- remained the coach. So he signed on for another four years. <clears throat> A number of great team players came on and the talent was there. The skills were there. They just weren't playing together as a team yet. They weren't, or maybe I should say, they weren't yet realizing their full potential. Um, and that's where good coaching, leadership, working together, tr- building trust, uh, trying to figure out what the different role is for different players on the team, uh, trying to figure out, you know what kind of commitment we're going to demand from these players, and are the how are the players going to react? Uh, trying to help them bridge a divide between beach and indoor, or between the East Coast players and the West Coast players, and were the players that played at USC versus the players that had played collegiately at UCLA or Pepperdine? You know, there's all of these uh, issues that needed to be solved. There was also the issue of, you know, what kind of offense or strategy or system. Is the team going to use? And and that was ended up being a very fascinating part of the story because the team creatively developed something called the American system or the American style. And it had never been utilized before. It was something that they innovated. And we can get into that. But what, one thing I want to point out about that system was that it, it wasn't something that was imposed by Doug Beal and his assistant coaches. It wasn't imposed uh, by the players alone. It was something that came from working together in practice, trying things, you know, um, what if scenarios and trying to figure out what system would allow the unique skills of these players with these personalities and kind of the cultural background of America where they grew up that they could utilize and bring them together in a way that brought out their full potential and and that really got me excited about the project. And as I would come back from interviews and learn more, it was almost like a, a detective. I was a detective trying to figure out how this thing came together. And I'd get little pieces and clues. And, and, um, and the fun part was sort of writing it for the reader so the reader can kind of see how it all happened.
1: I can imagine it's addictive. I can imagine that as soon as you get a little carrot that somebody will say one thing, you'll go, oh, like, as you're saying, a detective, I want to explore that more. So then all of a sudden are you ringing up the next person going, oh, I've got another three hours today. I can do this shit, whatever. Uh, the wife can wait. The kids can wait. I, I, I get on board, do this quickly.
0: <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of that. <laughs>
1: it just kind of all, all plays out that way, which, I mean, it is fascinating reading just that, trial and error and everything that you explain about how this american style came about and doug i can imagine for you just implementing these the the constant trying of things that were failing and then things were working and then ultimately i can imagine too when you're trialing these things in practice and then ultimately you want to work it out when it comes out to a match i mean was this something that on the level of being addicted to things mentioning there was sean were you back then doug kind of had a notebook where you're working things out going, well, this can work, this can work. Was it almost like an addicting thing for you to work out the trial and error of all these things that you ended up trying?
2: Uh, there was a lot of that, of, of I think, trial and error. Uh, the, I, I was thinking uh, or while Sean was talking, while you were uh, asking Sean some questions, um, there was no such thing, for example, as a concept of we have to create a certain culture which is so um, common in, in sports today. What's the culture in your gym? What's the culture of your team? You have to create a culture. Um, I think we did create a really interesting culture because we set standards that had never been uh, articulated or imposed, at least in the world of, of, of indoor volleyball at that time, and, and some demands that were pretty unique. The very good volleyball players up to that point um, just were so good that they knew they would get selected to the team each year, even though it was a year-by-year sort of structure. And so we put together uh, some long-term plans, some goal-setting, some – uh, a, a, a strategic plan of where do we wanna be? How do we get there? And I think where do you wanna be is the easy part. It's it's really not challenging to talk to players or coaches or uh, any kind of experts that you have around your team, physiologists, doctors, biomechanics, whatever the team around the team what is and say, what what are the objectives here? What are we trying to get to? And so you can put down win-loss records, you can put down statistics, you can put down winning competitions, you can do all that. The challenging part is to create a structure that allows you to have a a chance to achieve those end goals. And I think we did a pretty good job of that. And I think we also did a, a pretty good job of saying plans change. It doesn't always work exactly the way we'd like it to work. There are bumps in the road, players get injured, players change priorities, other teams get better, faster. Um, Some of the systems that you think are gonna be really successful aren't so successful. Um, There's so many uh, factors that go into this process that you have to be willing to change. I think we did that really well. I think we weren't afraid to say, this isn't working. We have to try something else. And I also think we were, in a sense, really good listeners, except with our eyes. This group of players, um, I I think almost any time you achieve something that's unique or special or or uh, significant, um, there's a lot of talent involved and sometimes the talent is not just, um, in the obvious ways, the best hitter, the best blocker, the best server, the best passer, etc. cetera, the skills of the game. Sometimes the talent is how that person affects other people, their commitment, their ability to gather the other players to the, the process we all need to do this better. We had a bunch of those kinds of personalities on the team that were sometimes very dramatic leaders, very dogmatic, very out there, very strong personalities. And sometimes just by how they participated in every day in practice. Um, So I I think, gosh, there's so many factors that, that go into this, but we changed a lot. And, you know, earlier also, uh, y- either you, Ben, or, or, or Sean were mentioning about the popularity of the team. Uh, it, it's really interesting. First, it, it was remarkable that Sean was able to interview in depth every single player, I, I think, with only one exception. They all responded. They were all engaged. Um, that speaks a lot to their commitment to this team for not just the four years leading up to winning a gold in 84, but continuing on winning another gold in 88, essentially really dominating the world for a six, eight year period, maybe longer, and coming from this really um, low point where there were 15 countries regularly beating the United States, maybe more. And so, one of the elements that I think was is really captured in this book is when do the when do the players take ownership of this team and they drive the ship and they did that Um, for sure we threw out some crazy ideas but nothing that we did that was so crazy was stonewalled by the players and and they whether they understood it or they didn't understand it whether we understood it or not they bought into We have to change a lot of things, which means a special level of commitment. (coughs) Excuse me. So I, I, I just think Sean did a great job of capturing that in in this book.
1: Well, one thing that was nearly stonewalled by the players, (laughs) outward bound, um, fascinating story learning about all of this, Sean, uh, please explain a little bit more uh, about this, this kind of, uh, you know, three week hike through the wilderness, which again is something which a lot of teams and athletes kind of tend to do now. But uh, back in the early eighties, this was not something that a lot of uh, sporting teams were doing, was it?
0: Yeah, I think I call that chapter a crazy idea. And I I got that from one of the players, uh, Paul Sunderland, when I asked him what his reaction was when he heard that the, coaches wanted to take the team on a three week outward bound wilderness experience. He said he, he thought they were nuts. He thought they were crazy. (laughs) Um, But where the idea came from, it was hatched almost a year and a half before the players actually went on the outward bound course, uh, maybe a year, 12 to six, 18 months, probably where the coaches got together with my father, Chuck Johnson, another team sports psychologist, and they were throwing around ideas, you know, what, how they, Thought this team could improve the dynamics, how they work together. You know, building trust, build the relationships. That really, I believe, is the X factor for when you get to the elite level that these t- players were playing. You know, the Soviets had elite talent. Uh, Brazil had elite talent at, at the time. Um, Korea, uh, Italy. I mean, there there were a lot of teams that had great talent and players that with skills. So, what's the x factor what's going to put your team over the top and it's how you play together as a team it's how you work together it's it's in the passing and in the you know working as a team right towards your strategy and alignment so they wanted to create that and, and it wasn't just happening naturally it wasn't just developing even though they were spending i think doug mentioned there's 10,000 hours in the gym together one year which is a lot of training time way more than the national team does today and they thought well perhaps we could take this team on a, a shared significant life experience you know something they would do together that was significant a life experience outside of volleyball that would help them build relationships and bonds and trust. And the first idea was to take them through boot camp, which is the U.S. military here in the United States. That's where you go for six weeks or eight weeks to learn how to become a soldier. And there's a huge Marine base just outside of San Diego and they contacted the base and and i just i always mention that because i just have visions of this team going through boot camp it's kind of funny to think of some of these players doug um you know crawling under the barbed wire or whatever going through the mud so the, the marines said no we're not going to take you through boot camp and so the next idea plan b was outward bound one of the coaches had an experience with this international group called outward bound which specializes in designing courses Anywhere from a few days to a month or more, uh, taking small groups through wilderness experiences, and where you learn resilience and you learn how to survive, uh, to navigate and cor- orienteer, and you learn about yourself. You also learn about the group you're going through with. And not many of the players had experience, especially in the winter time. It was decided that this would be in a winter excursion. Uh, they located the course in a part of the United States that's really beautiful, stunningly beautiful near a national park, Canyonlands National Park, which is just this beautiful sandstone canyon area. And also some fairly high mountains, um, not as high as the Rockies, but they're called the Abajo Mountains in southeastern Utah. And it was designed to be three weeks over 100 miles with the players and the coaches were there as well, carrying 70 pound packs, snowshoeing, you know, each night trudging through the snow, setting up their tents, clearing out their tents. And what's interesting about the, the experience there as I was interviewing players and also the, I, I got to interview, they weren't called guides, they were called instructors. So they like to call themselves instructors because a guide would be someone that you were relying on to show you the way and an instructor was there to teach you and then you were going to do it yourself. And that's really how the instructors want things to play out at outward bound. And so they were instructing the team on how to survive. And the instructors wrote these beautiful trip reports where I got so much information about what was happening day by day, which allowed me to sort of recreate for the reader what happened. You can just imagine taking these young men out of Southern California. They're used to the beach. They're used to the really warm weather and their feet in the sand. And all of a sudden, it's it's below freezing. It's snowing. It's all the way down to five degrees Fahrenheit. It's It is bitterly cold and they have to work together to survive and and i think that's the 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 first big piece that happens on outward bound is how they have to relate to each other in ways outside of the volleyball court they were used to relating to each other on the court where there's a certain hierarchy and the better players at the top of the hierarchy and and out in the in the wilderness some of the players that were on the bench became very valuable Uh, and Each player had to rely on their teammate to survive equally. For example, as you go through in snowshoes, someone has to break trail, someone has to be out front pushing you know, 30, 40, 50% more effort because you're the first one breaking the trail. And then that person goes to the end of the line and the next person goes. So just getting from point A to point B was a teamwork. When they arrived at the campsite, someone had to clear the snow out. Someone had to gather some firewood. Another person would start cooking dinner. Someone else would put the tents together. So together they would get ready to take care of each other and actually empathy for one another is another big point of emphasis in Outward Bound. Uh, So that was another part. Perhaps the, the biggest factor in all this is the players didn't want to be there, didn't really understand why they were being asked to go, felt like it was a distraction from their goal. Uh, several of the players said something on the lines of, well, we know we can get better playing volleyball in the, in the court, in the gym. How are we going to get better at volleyball you know snowshoeing around the mountains of utah and, I, and it was a so it was a very courageous move by doug and and the and my father and chuck johnson and bill neville and the whole coaching staff to to try this experience they to doug's point they were they weren't afraid one of my be- favorite quotes in the book is doug beale said at one point we weren't afraid to look foolish and try to try something different and this was definitely trying something different the American system that they developed was definitely trying something different. And they did look foolish at times. And Doug, some people did call for Doug to be removed as the coach because they thought, who who's crazy enough to do this trip. Who's crazy enough to, um, instill certain rules on the team that alienate some of the best players that leave the team and so forth. And, and so outward bound was this experience where these Southern California, young Southern California men came together to do something that they'd never done before. And, when they when they left um, at the end of the three weeks they related to each other in a different way and it was it, it showed up the team captain T- Chris Marlowe later said it showed up on the court in subtle ways and and I think that's true and I think it showed up in practice because it was after outward bound that the team had the trust where to do the trial and error what if innovative, steps that were required to build the american system to kind of innovate that american system where they had two passers in the back row instead of three which was one of their techniques and and they also had a very creative offense that allowed the creativity and the uniqueness of some of the players to really shine so it took that 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 trust to to develop uh to to innovate and i think that came from the outward bound experience but it certainly was um because they the players weren't didn't understand why they were there Um, as they were going through it. And even shortly after, I'm not sure they really understood how it was helping the team Uh, from a distance of 30, almost 40 years now. It's, I think it's more um, relevant or it's, you can more easily see how it potentially contributed.
1: And I can imagine for you, Doug, that's a case of once you win that gold medal, it's a, first of all, I told you so, that uh, helped on the way there. But was that something that then was implemented permanently? Like when you were coaching in 2000 and 2004, were you doing similar things, whether it be outward bound or something related to that?
2: I've not not found administrators that would allow you to do anything like this ever again, I
1: think.
2: (laughs) I think mostly, I mostly think they, they say now, you're so lucky that nobody, uh, was, was seriously injured or hurt. Uh, you know, there, there's so many parts to the, uh, Sean explains it quite well. Uh, you know, we, we really felt with that team that we, uh, had the potential to do something special, um, up to that point, uh, we had sort of, uh, been playing volleyball, like every other country. Uh, and, and one of the things Sean writes about in this book is that if, if you want to be better than teams, you can't just copy what the teams ahead of you are doing. You certainly have to understand it. Uh, you have to understand why they're good. Uh, and you have to understand how to make that happen within your culture, within your uh, physical talent, within your national identity. Uh, I think we did that much better uh, after the world championships of 82, where we finished 13th um, and had had some of those moments again of really remarkable play, but not enough. And and to be good, I think most coaches would tell you in any sport, if you're good, you're good over time. You don't just rise up occasionally and have a remarkable performance. You, You have to be able to replicate that over time. And part of that is you have to believe in each other. You have to trust each other. You have to recognize the value of every player. Uh, Sometimes you get stuck in seeing people on a team, especially in a team sport, just as they are in that sport environment. And so you develop this hierarchy that is based solely on skill and performance. And, And one of the things the Outward Bound experience did, I think for us, uh, as, as dramatically as anything else was it gave us a different uh, hierarchy. All of a sudden, players that might be a little in the middle of the pack or lower down because of their ability or their starting or not starting rose up or went down because of their skills in a completely different environment. Uh, and, and the need that the other players had to depend on them, which is what happens certainly in a team sport, but now what's happening outside of that team sport. And, and here's a player that uh, didn't have the, the most respect or the, or the most status and all of a sudden is performing in a really critical way uh, where players' safety may depend on that uh, player. And so they see that player differently. And, and I think that does build trust and I think it builds cohesiveness and it, and it builds teamness, um, which, which are hard things to define uh, but, but we, we did that pretty well in my view and there was this, uh, for the rest of the experience from through 84 and then even beyond players always had this experience to refer to. And when new players came on the team, oh, you didn't really get to experience outward bound. You don't really know what being, you know, taken into this extreme experience is really like you have it so easy now. <laughs> um, so that and that's important. I, I think having having a tradition, having something to fall back on and to point to, creates uh, a strength and a continuity and, and a really uh, strong fiber network of a of a team and a program. And I think we did have that, and and that team went on to just get better and better and better over the next four or five years after the eighty four games. So,
1: one thing I would love to learn a little bit more at those eighty four games. Tom Selleck. Now, uh, Sean, you mentioned a little bit in the book about him sort of being involved uh, with the team a little bit, and I'd love to hear sort of, uh, Doug, how that came about because, I mean, it's all well and good to look back now on Tom Selleck as somebody who's on Blue Bloods now, but for the 80s, he was Magnum P.I. He was, you know, a huge star in the 80s. Not to say he's not now, but uh, obviously different times. But how do you get someone like Tom Selleck? Because it wasn't just a case of, let's get a Hollywood star on board, was it? He was actually a volleyball player, I believe. So, uh, I mean, Doug, tell me about Tom yeah. Selleck and did he help? Did he help you win a gold medal in 84?
2: You know, uh, you, you could write multiple chapters about Tom Selleck. First, he he was uh, just a wonderful human being. He did play volleyball. He played it seriously. He was a good athlete. He was filming his uh, Magnum PI series during those years in Hawaii one of our coaches uh, Tony Crab was uh, uh, a Hawaiian native there was a, a connection we were able to make a contact and he was he was receptive and eager to help a national team an olympic team and and especially one that he he played he played uh, in senior volleyball at at that time. And he was a good player. Um, and he did some almost anything that we asked of him and he loved the connection of being around, you know, this group of, of athletes. And he was at the Olympics and uh, my recollection is he was at every, every match and, uh, including, um, visiting our locker room, uh, before the gold medal match against Brazil. And wow. one, one of my, one of my recollections is, um, so this is you're playing for a gold medal, and we had lost to Brazil earlier in the tournament, and uh, we're at home, and you know, fourteen thousand people, and uh, anyway, and and Tom was invited in, and he was really nervous. Uh, this is one of the biggest stars in the world at that time, uh, and and as you say, still a big star, but at that time he was really like a sex symbol. I mean, he was just about as popular as you can imagine anybody being. His show was one of the top rated shows, maybe the top rated, and he walks into that environment. And I remember Bill and a, a couple of players had to sort of pick up the context because he, he really didn't know what to say. Uh, it was an interesting juxtaposition of, of most of us would be sort of tongue-tied and not sure how to act around him in his mm-hmm. environment. Here he is in our environment and, and just as I don't know, feeling maybe a little bit out of it. But he was just wonderful. He allowed us to uh, make a couple of posters uh, that we sold and kept the revenue for, which was significant for us at the time. And in addition, we, we played some exhibition matches with his senior team against a group that we put together we played one in San Diego that I remember, particularly a couple in Las Vegas. Uh, he, he just gave of his time to be connected to this team to assist us in almost anything that was reasonable that we would ask for. A, 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 a wonderful down to earth, terrific guy. His son had played some volleyball at USC. So he, he had a connection in a couple of different ways. Um, I, I can't say enough for, for how much he helped us and how much credibility he, he gave at a time when the sport broadly needed it in, in the United States. Um, so it was a, just a, some terrific memories of his involvement.
1: Did you ever try and sneak in a Cameo or Magnum PI or did he ever like ask? You know, like, I mean, Chris obviously was a bit involved in Hollywood, so I don't know if like that helped him get a, a walk-on role on Magnum PI at all. You know, I haven't talked to Chris, I'll have to, I'll have to talk to him about that. (laughs) But I,
2: I I remember one, one time we were in Las Vegas, uh, and we played an exhibition match. Tom was there. And after we finished the exhibition match, which, which was terrific and and helped us raise some much needed revenue, but the most important thing was the exposure. We went to one of the casinos, Tom was so popular. That when he went into the casino, they had to rope off an area around, I don't know, the roulette table or the craps table or wherever we were playing. <laughs> Honestly, to keep him from being mobbed, wow. and we were all invited in. It, it it was just wonderful to have the these sort of juxtaposition experiences. We are in his world some. He came into our world some. Um, just a, a, a wonderful down-to-earth guy and and helped us immeasurably in in so many ways uh, in the lead up to the 84 games. And in fact, at the Olympic uh, tournament in Long Beach. I wonder who they get
1: uh, to yeah, do that in again. 2028. Tom Cruise, post-Top uh, Gun fame. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how yeah, <laughs> He's
2: got some volleyball background there in the, in the original uh, Top yeah, Gun. Yeah, huh? exactly.
1: Uh, Not sure how that, sure. that works. Sean, I mean, for yourself, with all the interviews you did and, and everything that kind of went along with writing the book, was there one standout story to you that stood amongst the rest that was the one that maybe you enjoyed writing about the most, or that perhaps it was something you didn't know about. And then writing about it really kind of fascinated you in, in when you were learning more about it through the process.
0: Well, you know, there's a lot of them, um, I guess one story that, that really captured me was related to Chris Marlowe, the player we were just talking about who Chris was the captain of the team at the Olympics. And Chris is now the play-by-play announcer for the Denver Nuggets. If there's any NBA fans out there listening, and you you ever tune in to the Denver Nuggets, you'll hear him do play-by-play. He's an, an announcer. Uh, but at the time, Chris was the oldest player on the team, and his he was battling to be the back to be the backup setter to Dusty Dvorak, who far and away was the best setter on the team, and who Doug Beals described as, as probably one of, if not the best um, setter that the United States has produced and he's right up there. And so, you know, Chris was trying to battle to to be the backup setter and he he was 31 years old at the time, wasn't quite in his prime athletically, but what he was in his prime uh, and has probably always remained in his prime is the kind of person that with the certain charisma and um leadership ability and ability to inspire others to perform at a higher level to elevate the play of his teammates it's it's something that some players have and as I what researched Chris and what went deeper into his history you know in high school he played basketball at Pacific Palisades High School in Los Angeles which is has had some great players go through there including Steve Kerr and Kiki Vandaway who are big big stars in the nba they had never won a city championship except for his senior year in high school and his coach credits the camaraderie and the team work that was on that team that chris captained Uh, when chris went to chris Marlowe went to college he played both basketball and volleyball at, at san diego state and the san diego state volleyball team when he was captain his senior year won the NCAA championship. It's the only team sport that San Diego state has ever won at the NCAA level in the United States across any sport, men's or women's. And he was the captain. And then Chris went on to play on this team. Um, so I, you know, we just lost a sports giant, um, a human, human being who was incredible here in the United States in the sports world, Bill Russell, Mm -hmm. uh, because we're recording this on August 1st. And, yeah. Uh, you know, Bill Russell. I actually talk about Bill Russell a little bit in the book because mention, when I was- You mentioned him, about
1: being one of Doug's, I believe, one of your heroes, Doug, which, yeah, it was kind of yeah sad to, that yeah. happens to be and today that we're recording that, unfortunately. Yeah.
0: yeah. I haven't had a chance to talk to Doug about that yet, but like, you know, this was, you know, when I was interviewing Doug, he, he, he looked to the Celtics as a team that had success over time. You know, they weren't just, They didn't just win one championship, they won 11. Every time they went on the court, they were competing. And that's where this team wanted to be in the early 80s. They wanted to elevate there. And what the Celtics had was Bill Russell. And I came across a Bill Russell quote just over the weekend as I was reading about him and his life and some of the great tributes that have been written about him just in the last 24, 48 hours. He said, you know, the, the most important thing I did on the court was to make my teammates play better. And because he was the consummate teammate, he wasn't the highest scorer uh, for the Celtics. And Chris Marlowe was not the highest scorer. He didn't spend a lot of time uh, on the court, actually, during the Olympics. I don't know how many minutes he actually had. D- Doug would have a better idea. But he certainly was not on the court at the critical points, but he was very critical to the team and how he got to be, and I'll just tell the listeners this, if you, I hope you'll, you'll read the story and I don't want to give away too much, but I will tell you that three months, roughly three to four months before the Olympics, he was cut from the team. Um, yet he ended up becoming the captain and how that plays out. You'll just have to read the book, but I think that story really caught my attention and, um, I, I hope people can relate to it, never to give up, you know, and, and to be ready and, and to um, understand the importance of different roles that people play on the team. It's not always the being the high score. It's not always being the MVP on the court. Sometimes it's about helping your teammates become better. And and finding players like that. And, and, and Doug said earlier, eventually great teams leadership emerges from the team. And I think Chris was an example of that. And then Chris retired from volleyball at the national level shortly after the 84 Olympics, but he sort of passed the torch on to Karch Karai, who had a similar uh, impact on his teammates in that he did something that brought the best out of everyone. He, he, people look to Karch as setting an example of what's possible. He held himself to such high standards and held others and was so focused and determined that he got everyone around him to play better. And Karch was, in my opinion, the the captain that led throughout this six to eight years of dominance, it was Karch was the player, just like Bill Russell was the player for the Celtics. But Chris Marlowe kind of got it going. Chris was there. Karch was pretty young at those Olympics still just barely out of college um so the chris Marlowe part of the story i i just it really really spoke to me and um he's that's why he's on the cover too you know he's he's holding the american flag it's kind of i hope uh listeners get a chance to to read about chris and in, in, in his journey
1: i was very fascinated reading about Chris, and everything along those lines, definitely. And as you are saying, sort of that whole just attitude he had to really gel that team. One thing I actually just wanted to quickly ask Doug, just uh, mentioning Karch Karai, the GOAT of, of volleyball, but talking about sort of almost like a, a coming full circle moment. Obviously, Karch won three gold medals as a player, but recently, of course, uh, basically about a year ago at the time of recording this, led the US women's team to their very first ever Olympic gold medal is that something as a coach knowing that you achieved that for the men's team that you kind of have now that connection to the women winning their first gold that obviously you're probably proud seeing him going on to win those medals as a player but for him to be a coach achieve this success for the women's team now i mean how did that make you feel when the women were able to do that last year led by one of your former players
2: coach is a, a remarkable human being uh, in every sense of the world uh, i think um, the accomplishments that he's uh, achieved in volleyball and frankly in life are uh, are, are bill russell like uh, very honestly um i i it, it scares me sometimes when i think back that i almost didn't hire him as our as our women's national coach um, uh, and that looks like that would have been the most foolish uh, omission or, or decision <laughs> uh, that I could have possibly made. Um, yeah, he, he's, um, he's just done some really special things in the sport and it, it is wonderful. He's grown tremendously. Uh, he's always been this uh, super focused, accomplished athlete but he carries it far beyond that. Uh, And and he he studies and he works at it and he listens and he just solves problems immediately. Uh, I I say this to, I've said this to so many people, um, uh, just uh, as an employee of USA Volleyball, they're extraordinarily fortunate that Karch uh, has become so committed uh, as a, as a long national team coach. And, uh, as long as he wants to do that job, uh, he, he ought to, he ought to be uh, in that position. Uh, he he's really, um, he, he's, he's changed, I think in some respects, his, uh, outward personality, uh, to adapt it to the changing structure of the national program. Uh, He's done some, uh, I think, just special things in terms of integrating new players into the uh, the women's program. The culture that he's created is, is special. So yeah, I, I feel great, obviously, about the time I got to coach this remarkable player uh, that had a huge impact on the men's national team and then went on to do perhaps even more remarkable things on the beach uh, side. And then, Coach, I, 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 I don't know that anybody will ever match um, the achievements of Karch in the
1: sport of volleyball. Of course, the pretty, only player ever to win a gold in both beach and uh, in, indoor. Incredible achievement. Before I let you guys go, one quick question. Uh, obviously, we mentioned the Miracle on Ice. Uh, they made a great movie called Miracle. Kurt Russell uh, played the coach in that one. Uh, great movie. Uh, Sean, if they were to make your book into a movie, is Kurt Russell playing Doug? Who who's playing Doug? Like, I mean, you, you know, give it give us some ideas out there. Tom Selleck, I mean, that that could be a, a great sort of a full circle moment.
0: Actually that I, is I, I'd be one. honored. <laughs> that is a fantastic idea to to uh to have Tom Selleck play Doug Beale. Um yeah, I I you know the movie thing is really it's fascinating because a lot of people do tell me, you know, the book's been out for two or three weeks now. And the number of people that really would like to see this made into a movie is, is pretty remarkable, uh, because it does have that the elements of, a, of a, a made for Hollywood movie You almost couldn't write the script. I mean, it's like one of those things where the the fiction, you just couldn't come up with it, what to outdo what really happened. And so uh, we'll see, I don't there know. is some interest, you never know with these things, but um, I, I think it would be fun if it actually happened. It would be a perfect
1: tie-in for 2028. Like, I mean, again, we've still got six years. There's plenty of time to cast, film this thing. And, I mean, you know, Hollywood is smart enough that they could do this and release it, like, in the lead-up to the games. I mean, that's perfect tie-in. And then when you guys are lighting the cauldron, Doug, like, you could be like, hey, you were also in that movie, and Tom Selleck could join you up there lighting the cauldron. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He
2: and I could hobble up there together.
1: Yeah, I think. <laughs> <laughs> I don't uh, want to hear this Michael Phelps business about him. Oh, he won all these gold. He should like the cauldron. No, like this is LA. Come on now. That's
2: right. Let's exactly. get a local team. A local team that achieved greatness. Uh, yeah, that'd be great.
1: Exactly. That's that's yeah. how it should work. Uh, the book, of course, if gold is our destiny, how a team of Mavericks came together for Olympic glory. Is available now if you're listening to us in Australia, Amazon, Booktopia, great places to get it. If you're listening to us outside of Australia and Canada, the US, uh, online, Amazon, other retailers, Barnes & Noble, places like that. Uh, Sean, just quickly for yourself, anywhere people can follow you on social media if they want to sort of stay up to date with not only your, your writing, but obviously you, you do some great stuff as well. Give yourself a plug if people want to get involved yeah. with anything else you're involved in.
0: Yeah. If you want to learn more about what I'm doing, I also have a page on the, about the book at my website. It's real time performance, all one word, R E A L T I M E performance. Uh, that's my company where I do consulting around leadership and organization development. I also am on Twitter at Sean P Murray and then one, one, one. So 111. So Sean P Murray, one, 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 you follow me there. I'm always posting about leadership and building teams and crossing over into the sports world. And, uh, end up, uh, tw- tweeting a lot about volleyball these days too, to my <laughs> surprise, but, uh, I'm get, kind of getting uh, caught up in that world too. But, um, yeah, I, uh, p- please look, look for me there. If you want to, uh, follow what I'm doing.
1: And, uh, social media, anything people can follow you or you just have your retirement golf doesn't matter. Zero. Yeah. <laughs> Zero. I'm, I'm, I'm
2: trying to, I'm, I'm trying to accomplish, uh, some, uh, so far, unattainable
1: goals in golf. Uh, <laughs> no no social line. media, zero <laughs> social media. Weirdly jealous of that fact. Uh, guys, this has yeah. been an absolute pleasure to chat with you both and off the podium. Thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Ben, All thank right. you. This was really, really a pleasure.
1: And a massive thanks to both Sean and Doug. They're such a great chat, learning a lot. And I know this is that point where I come on and say, hey, I'm I'm plugging this book because I have to. I'm helping them promote the book, but I'm not. I in honestly saying that I love this book. I did read it in essentially a day and couldn't put it down. And as people know, I'm not a big reader if you listen to some of our other shows. So uh, this was something that really did uh, resonate with me this story and would love to see it turned into a movie I think this would make a fantastic movie Tom Selleck as Doug Bill let's put it out there and Lighting the Cauldron for 2028 I'm telling you now here on Off the Podium we have set the 2028 Cauldron Lighters and the 2032 Cauldron Lighters we just need to come up with some famous French athletes Zinedine Zidane let's put him out there I don't know if he ever played in the Olympics but he's a French legend and he's been in the Stade de France before won a World Cup for France in 1998 so I'm calling it now Zinedine Zidane should be Lighting that, kicking a soccer ball into the cauldron. Boom. Paris 2024. There's cauldron ideas. We've set the next three. Uh, but, again, big thanks to Sean and Doug. And also a special thanks, to to Elizabeth and at Weaving Influence for hooking us up with that interview. And if you want to see the video version of that interview as well, of course, YouTube, hit that up and we are on there for all our other interviews as well. You can find it on there while you are there. Subscribe. It would be great for you to stay up to date with what we've got coming out. And of course, you can do that subscribing to our channel on all good podcast platforms, smash the subscribe button, leave us some feedback. We'd love to know what you think of the show and social media, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, You can stay up to date with who we've got on. You can interact with us, send us in a question, tell us who you want on the show, anything along those lines. We do love hearing from you out there. And we do, of course, appreciate the support that you bring us. Next week, we'll be back with another episode. Great interview coming your way. I won't spoil it. You can tune in next week to find out who that will be. So get excited, get pumped up and get ready for the remainder of 2022 because we've got plenty of good stuff coming and we're very excited to be bringing you the content that we are and the support that you're bringing us. We appreciate that as always. Shout out to Sean and Doug again. Thank you so much for giving us your time. And for you, the listener, this has been Octopodium. My name is Ben. Shout out to the Bull from Birmingham. And until next time, remember, go left.